Let's take our Bibles this morning and return to our study of Revelation chapter 16 as we continue to look at the revelation of Jesus Christ and anticipate the glory of the second coming of Jesus Christ as we are rapidly in our study and possibly even in our very life approaching that reality. Our passage this morning is going to be taken from Revelation 16, beginning in verse 10. The Apostle John writes this, And the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. They gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh poured out his bull upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. There were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. There was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because it was extremely severe. We've spent quite some time in Revelation up to this point. Just as we saw with the seven seal judgments and again with the seven trumpet judgments, so too here with these bold judgments, there seems to be a dividing of the judgments, a dividing in the seals, a dividing in the trumpets, a dividing in the bold judgments into a grouping of four and then three. In other words, the first bold judgments form a group, and then these final three judgments form another group. The first four, different parts of creation were affected. For example, we saw men who were inflicted with painful tumors with bowl number one. You remember that back in verse two. 
in bowls three and four, the sea and the springs of fresh water that come out from the ground and the streams were made toxic. Verses three through seven clearly showed us that. And then last time we were together, the sun was given power to increase by way of temperature and heat so that the sun was then turned up under bowl number four and men were burned with fire. And now with these final three judgments, the character of the beast and his followers are directly affected. There was an indirect effect because on them because of the reality of creation being affected. But now there's a direct effect. The beast and those who follow him become the special targets of God's divine justice. And you say, why do you say this? Well, I I say this because if you notice, bull number five directly affects the kingdom of the beast, verses 10 and 11. Bull number six in verses 12 through 16 affect the power or influence of the beast. And then bull number seven directly affects the capital of the beast in verses 17 through 21. So under judgment number five, the Antichrist kingdom is darkened under Judgment number six, his power or influence is disclosed to all. And under judgment number seven, his capital is destroyed. But God has already dealt indirectly with Antichrist. Now he deals directly with Antichrist. Now when we, when we think of these things that we have read about here this morning, we are certainly reminded of natural disaster. Even in my short life, my 51 years here on this earth, this world has been no stranger to varying and many natural disasters. We have seen storms in the history of even my life. There have been fires, there have been floods, there's great winds that have crossed the landscape, earthquakes, hurricanes, and I have been in many of those. Some even attach them to me as if I'm the cause. (laughs) I know some of you like to say I'm the cause of bad winters because you had record-setting winters when I got here. Hurricanes came when I was in Florida. Earthquakes happened when I was in California. Snowstorms happened in other places. Maybe I am the cause. I don't know. And I'm thankful there's no boat you can throw me off. (laughs) each one of those disasters brought heartache they brought pain loss of property loss of life we even have seen that in the very short weeks of our history here in the past time however was able to heal those wounds over time landscapes are restored god allows the grass and the trees to grow back buildings are rebuilt Wounds are healed. The bitterness of loss of life seems to fade over time. But what we read about here is to be like none other that will ever be seen, ever be felt, and time will not be able to heal this wound. In fact, chapter 16 of Revelation presents a description of these seven judgments from which there is no healing at all. 
The holiness of God is now being vindicated. And it's being vindicated upon those who refuse to turn to God, upon those who will not repent, who will not believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who will not turn, there is a firestorm of judgment that awaits them. In fact, the man told us this morning as we were talking to him in his anger, he said, I don't believe any of these things. I don't believe what the Bible says. I don't believe if there even is a hell. He says, I'm gonna ha- I have in my my uh, uh, will that my daughter is to put a gun, a shotgun by me in the coffin so when I get into hell I go in guns blazing. Frightening, frankly. Frightening. This here in Revelation 16 is the judgment of God upon those who tread underfoot the grace of the Son of God. It's upon those who say no to the call of God to come to Him. Here we see all of the prayers of the saints for God's vindication now becoming the full weight of God's judgment. And I think this is one of the principles we often don't think about very often, but but forget or or maybe don't even really understand about Scripture uh, that is so fearful for us to think about. When God, in grace and mercy, sends to humanity His Son so that His Son might die for sinners like you and me. And then He brings about someone into our life through providential circumstances that will teach us and proclaim to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. Someone who will open the Bible to us and plead with us on behalf of God Himself to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And wicked, rejecting, blaspheming unbelievers say to all of that mercy, to all of that grace, to all of that shining of God's light upon them, no, I will not come. I will not believe. I I will not embrace Jesus Christ. Then, listen, then every gracious act of God and every act of mercy that God has shown becomes the very outpouring of wrath upon the Christ rejecter. You say, how do you say that? John 3, verse 35 and 36 says this. The words of Jesus Christ himself, the words of God incarnate to Nicodemus, the religious leader of the day. He said this to Nicodemus, the father loves the son and he has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the son has eternal life. But he who disobeys the son through unbelief shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, that's the imagery that we see in Revelation chapter 16. The bulls or or the censers symbolically, the, the 
sanctified utensils that were used in the temple worship to bring service before God. Now here, God's grace having been spurned and having been rejected, now these utensils become the very instruments of God's judgment of wrath. Why? Because God loves His Son. And because of His holy character... Those who have spurned and rejected His grace will now face the final volley of the righteous judgment of God. It's frightening. It's frightening. It's filled with horror. You cannot read these pages without being shocked. This is not fantasy, folks. This is as real as it gets. And it's coming. Bowl one, tumorous sores. Bowl two, toxic seas. Bowl three, toxic springs and rivers. Bowl four, the sun is turned up. And now bowl five, the kingdom of the beast is darkened. The fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast. And his kingdom became darkened. Now, I know here we try to be, endeavor to be conscientious Bible students. And so when we read this, we have to take it at face value here. We should not try in our understanding to spiritualize this text to mean something that it does not mean. We take it at face value. Under the outpouring of this fifth bowl, a complete physical darkness engulfs the kingdom of the beast. Just like in the fifth plague, under God through Moses upon Egypt as the Israelites were being delivered by God out of the oppressive hand under Pharaoh in Egypt, so too here God causes a physical darkness to come upon the throne of the beast. You can see that in verse 10. So what does that mean? What? Does he mean the throne of the beast? The word throne is used some 61 times in the New Testament. 54 of those times it's translated throne. The other six times it's translated seat. Same word, thronos. Seat or throne, they equal the same thing. The place of authority, the place of rule. Even in our democracy, in our day, the place of authority is called the what? The seat of government. It is the the place of rule, the place of authority, the center of rule. And so here, it is the very center of the authority of rule of Antichrist. The very place of the rule that this physical darkness engulfs in the Antichrist kingdom. In fact, the original word here in the text indicates that this isn't simply made to be dark, as if someone just goes, oh, by the way, darkness slowly comes upon this place. No, this is, the word here, became darkened, means plunged into darkness. Something is happening that is unusual. This is very dramatic language. It's very emphatic language. God is making a point here, and he's giving us a picture of a city that, is once brightened by the abundance of lights and suddenly goes completely dark. 
And if we ponder this just for a moment, it seems rather interesting. Because who is behind the Antichrist rule? Satan, right? Chapter 13, verse 2, Satan gives him his throne, his power. Satan is behind it all. These are simply puppets of Satan. Satan has given him his throne. The Old Testament, interestingly enough, describes Satan from some passages as the morning, the sun of the morning. What happens in the morning? It gets light. Light comes up. Satan is described time to time that way. He is called in Isaiah the bright morning star. The one who appears most often as the angel of light. Satan comes disguising himself as that. And yet here he is unable, being behind the power of Antichrist, he's unable to keep the very capital of his earthly puppet lit. By the way, you might read in some commentaries, there are some who try to say this is simply a moral darkness that comes over the kingdom of Antichrist. That when this fifth bowl is poured out on the throne of the beast, there is in his kingdom became darkened. It means moral darkness. That moral darkness comes over the people of the Antichrist kingdom. Well, that seems rather logical, but it's not true because moral darkness has already come upon the kingdom and across the world through the false religion of the Antichrist. So it can't be moral darkness falling upon them. They're already morally dark. And furthermore, this physical darkness may very well be, in fact, God's answer to the very reality of rampant moral darkness already. In other words, it could very well be that God sends this physical darkness upon the kingdom of the Antichrist to show men that choosing darkness rather than light has inescapable consequences. And we saw that in John chapter 3. And I want us to turn back to John chapter 3 just for a moment because I want to highlight this a little bit further. John chapter 3. I think we can see this reality of following moral darkness has its consequences of complete darkness. In the words of Jesus to Nicodemus, and I'll begin with a very familiar verse, John 3, verse 16, and I just want to read the words of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Because God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Interesting phraseology. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You say, well, that's very interesting. He has been judged already. If he has not believed, he has been judged. What's the judgment? Verse 19, and this is the judgment. That the light has come, the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. 
For everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be revealed or manifested as having been born in God or wrought in God. In other words, there are eternal consequences for not coming to the light of Christ. That's Jesus' whole point with Nicodemus. There's eternal consequences if you don't come to the light. The eternal God who, as Psalm 104 says, makes darkness and it is night, in Revelation 16, covers the satanic kingdom of the Antichrist with the answer to its very moral condition internally. And this is darkness, and this darkness is a clear testimony to the power of God. If you will not come to the light, you are judged. The very mercy of God, the very reality of God's grace toward you becomes the very judgment of God upon you. Remember the words of chapter 13 in Revelation, verse 4, And they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? The answer to that is this, God. And here in Revelation chapter 16, it is unmistakable. Just like the plagues upon Egypt, the Egyptian sun god Ra, R-A, that's the god they worshipped for the sun, by the way, of whom Pharaoh was an earthly representative of. Just like their god couldn't do anything with them, God could turn off the sun so it was dark over Egypt. They could do nothing. Their god Ra could do nothing. Pharaoh, who was the earthly representative of Ra, the sun god, could do nothing to thwart the power of God. Now here in Revelation chapter 16, we look toward the end of the age. Satan's power can't hold a candle to the power of God the Almighty. And notice... While the text does not specifically tell us where this is, just says the kingdom of became darkened. I know, if you're like me, your curiosity's killing you. You're saying, but where is this? I mean, this everything else was global. This seems to be a centralized reality, and, and I believe it is. Where is this? But we already know where this is if you our reader of the New Testament, and you've read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, then you clearly know where this is because in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, it talks about the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, and it tells us that he will set up his seat in the temple declaring himself to be God. Where's the temple? Well, it isn't there today, but it will be built there one day, and that is in Jerusalem place of the temple will be none other than Jerusalem in the future. So, here in Revelation chapter 16, the darkness engulfs the religious center of Antichrist, and that is Jerusalem. 
Same place from which Christ will rule when he comes and throws all of those who are against him out into the lake of fire. So in Revelation 16, that darkness is engulfing Jerusalem. Now, as you read further in Revelation, there seems to also be an administrative and commercial center or capital, if you will, for Antichrist as well. And we'll get into that in the coming weeks. But for now, the focus here in this fifth bowl is on Jerusalem. The followers of Antichrist know that the only explanation for this darkness is God whom they have defied. You say, how do you know that? Because verse 11 says they blaspheme the God of heaven. They know. There's no mistake there. And so the action of the fifth angel, the fifth bold judgment, is upon the throne of the beast, the, the seat of rule, and authority of the beast, and the impact is upon that kingdom. The kingdom is darkened. You say, what's the result? What's the result upon the people? Well, the hope would be, this would be our hope, the hope of anybody would be that the individual would confess sin. The desire is that there would be some kind of turning to God from sin. Repentance. But we must never underestimate the hardness of the human heart. Some people say the hardest material on earth is the diamond. And I will tell you the hardest thing on earth is the human heart. There's nothing more hard than that. And while we would hope for some kind of turning from sin, the results are just the opposite. Before we look into these specifically really quickly this morning uh, there's one important reality i think we often don't realize or contemplate without god's work without god's omnipotent merciful power and work sin in the heart of man is incurable absolutely incurable intellectually i think we know that we're Christians. We've believed in Jesus Christ. We, we understand uh, that intellectually. But practically speaking, on a practical level, oftentimes we don't act as if that's true. Far too often we try to use worldly techniques and man-made remedies for sin. They'll never work. Never work. Man cannot cure himself. Interestingly enough, there's a three-letter word in this text that kind of shows us the, the reality of that. God said every little part of the Word of God is important, every little detail. Well, every little word is important. And the word that I'm speaking of is just a simple word, and. And. The word and in these two verses allows us to feel the weight of the hardness of the heart of man. Notice and just listen to what it says. The fifth angel pours out his bowl upon the throne of the beast and his kingdom is darkened. And they gnaw their tongues because of pain. And they blaspheme the God of heaven because of the pains in their sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. Did you notice the piling on effect? 
the continual reality of stuffing another rock in the backpack, if you will. So that, in the end, the hearts of these people have been irrevocably hardened against God. The three major statements summarize the results of what happens. They gnaw their tongues out of pain. They blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And they do not repent of their deeds. So these are the results. Let's just take them one by one really quickly. First, they gnaw their tongues. The word gnaw is an interesting word. It, it really, in its simplest way, just means to chew. To chew. It's their only attempt to find relief from pain. Think about that for just a moment in your own life. You think about pain in your own life. Uh, the, you are reeling from pain. You're reeling from sores. And the only attempt of relief you find is another form of pain. I was trying to talk to my wife about this this week as I'm studying. Sometimes I come home and she gets to breathe the, the first parts of what I'm going to teach. And I was talking about pain. And I said, I, I was trying to think of what that was like. And the only thing I could think of, which doesn't bear any comparison really at all, was when I had braces and the doctor would tighten up my braces on a day and I would go home and my teeth would be hurting the next day. And the only thing I could do to find relief from that is to squeeze my jaw really tight. It hurt terribly, but there was kind of a relief in it. Well, that's what these people are doing. They're so painful that they're chewing on their tongues. And by the way, the word pain here means the most intense and excruciating agony known to man. That's what the word pain here means. I said, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder what man would say is the most excruciating pain. See where my mind goes when I'm studying the Bible? I'm going down rabbit trails. I want to find out what God's trying to say here. And so I did a little research to find out what is the most painful injuries as described by a patient or by people who are in pain. I found this out. They say, in general, neuropathic pain is the most severe pain you could ever endure. Pain produced by damage to nerves rather than pain produced by tissue damage. They say that produces the most excruciating pain, according to one man, Alan Basbaum, who is chair of the anatomy department at the University of California in San Francisco and a former editor of Pain, the journal of the International Association for the Study of Pain. He said, and because many of these conditions come and go, patients often live in trepidation of their next attack. He said, the unknown is terrifying. And so they made a list of what was listed as the most terrible of pain. And he said, while the definite ranking is impossible, here's a look at a few of the most debilitating maladies known to man, which some patients rank as a 15 on a scale of 1 to 10. You might be surprised at some of these, especially the ladies. The first one is cluster headache. Cluster headache. People who suffer from cluster headaches describe them as worse than childbirth without anesthetics. Some of you ladies might argue with that. 
Worse than gunshot wounds, worse than head injuries, worse than burned hands. They'll find the worst thing they can think of and tell you it's worse, said neurologist Dr. Peter Goadsby, who is the director of the University of San Francisco's Headache Center. He said, it always causes me to stop and draw a breath, as they're describing it to him. The second, maybe some of you have had this, kidney stones, surprise to me. Severe pain in the side of the back, spreading to the lower abdomen, groin, causes vomiting and other things. No thanks, I don't want that. Then there was this one I can hardly pronounce, trigenial neuralgia. Said it affects sensory information from your face to your brain. If you've heard of this nervous system disorder, he says, and that's a big if, you probably heard it described as the world's worst pain. So this condition affects a nerve that sends sensory information from your face to your brain, resulting in stabbing pain to the face. Yeah. But patients always remember where they were and what they were doing the first time they were afflicted with this excruciating pain. If patients aren't correctly diagnosed, I was telling my wife this this week, they sometimes get their teeth pulled, believing the pain is coming from their mouth. Then, of course, four is spinal cord injuries. Why? Because there's phantom limb pain. Phantom limb pain, of course, isn't pain in the limb. It says phantom limb pain is so debilitating because it's pain in the brain. I don't even know how that works. Then, of course, five, you have burns, gallbladder. Seven ladies was childbirth. I think we get the picture. In Revelation chapter 16, this pain is far worse than any of those. And your only attempt here for relief is to chew your tongue off because of the pain. Doesn't stop there. Another and word connects us to that next statement of weight. Because of your anger now, secondly, you blaspheme the God of heaven because of your pain and sores, it says. And so, once again, men are completely conscious of the fact that these judgments are the direct acts of God. Scientists certainly may be trying to explain them away by their fanciful explanations. You can bet the politicians of the day will try to give their explanations to what is going on. Worldly philosophers certainly will chime in with their futile answers as to what is happening in the world. But the one thing that man will not do that man ought to be doing, and that is acknowledging his sin. And instead of acknowledging his sin... Man will look at his sores, feel his pain, and throw his insults in the direction of God. None of this, by the way, is the fault of his mind, he thinks. Man says, this is not my fault. All of this is the action of an unjust God. So just like before, just like we have seen already, those who are alive will charge God with being unrighteous. They will charge God with being vindictive in his action against them. They, by their way of unwillingness to acknowledge their sin, 
are just simply the poor, helpless, ignorant creatures that are on the earth that don't deserve anything they're getting. And all the while they're saying that, they're impugning the holy character of God. So while the end result of those who will not acknowledge and take responsibility of their sin will be unmitigated, unrelieved pain, and they in their anger will lash out against God, and in the end, they will not repent. Notice verse 11, and they did not repent of their deeds. They refused to acknowledge that the cause of their pain is not God at all. God is not the cause of all that's happening in the sense of their own pain. The reality is the cause is their own sinfulness, their own rejection of the mercy and grace of God upon their life. And by the way here, you might notice this is the last time repentance is ever mentioned in the book of Revelation. After this point, you never even see that word again. And I think that simply tells us that all along, all along throughout the tribulation, all the way up to this final point, God has desired that people repent. And if they would repent and believe, God would save them. But they refused. It just brings tears to your eyes, doesn't it? As bad as this is, folks, listen, as bad as this is, their only relief will be hell itself. You say, boy, if they can just make it through the tribulation, then everything will be great. No, the only relief from the tribulation is hell. And with hell, there is no relief. As much as for us, this is a graphic picture of what is to come in the end of the seven-year tribulation. So, too, it's a study in the pathology of sin. The pathology of sin in the heart of man. We're not going to get into all of it today, but just look for a moment over at verse 21. Because the chapter ends with these words, And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. You see, we might be thinking in our minds, People would be saying, please, God, the government has gone whack job. It is mad. The government's going crazy. Are you kidding me? Do something. We might think that people might be saying, please, God, the oppressor over us is so great. We need relief. Please, God, the judgment is so severe. Save us. No, they don't. All they do is speak ill of God himself. Men blaspheme God. No sign of revival. No sign that they turn and repent. No turning at all. And listen, this is the spirit of human depravity. This is where human depravity will go if God doesn't do something. Depravity is the complete inability of a man or a person at all to satisfy the penalty of their sin. That's human depravity. The complete inability to do anything to cure yourself. We know that. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. I told that man this morning, it has been appointed to man once to die and then judgment comes. 
The only acceptable payment for sin is death. That's it. Either man dies for eternity in hell, or man repents and believes in the eternal one, Jesus Christ, who died once. Who died once so that all who believe upon him might live with God forever and ever and ever. You see, the penalty is the same. The wages of sin is still death. It's either going to be the death of of the human forever and ever and ever and ever in, in an unrelenting, unrelieving hell itself, or you will believe upon Jesus Christ who paid your death penalty. And the judgment of darkness in the tribulation will soon become the permanent judgment in the painful darkness of hell forever. why we preach the gospel we preach the gospel because there's nothing else that will shatter the hardness of the human heart more than the chisel of the gospel of God's grace that's why we are commanded as Christians in Matthew 28 while going make disciples teaching them, baptizing them and teaching them all that God has commanded you that's why we do that Because hell is a real place. Hell is a forever place. You see, this is amazing rejection. The amazing reality of the the rejection of the heart of man, the pathology of sin, and where it will go when it's unchecked and when when it's unrepentant and turning to God. It will go all the way to the end and it will stand under all of the judgment of God and think that it's still innocent before God and God will damn it to hell because of its rejection. This shows us how engulfed man is in the satanic system system of the world heart can be so hard can it so I want to ask this morning this question what about you what about you have you rejected the pleas of God over and over again have you rejected his mercy and his grace over and over and over Because of the hardness of your heart. You some here may say, Yeah, probably. I've probably done that, but but if it's if if the going gets really tough, then I'll change. Really? Really? You see, these people don't change. They've heard it all. They've seen it all. They don't change. You see, when this day comes, repentance is unavailable. There's no more time. The day of salvation is gone. And so Jesus says, just like he said to Nicodemus, why will you perish? Why? Why will you you go from, from trusting me? Why will you perish? Sores, waterless, toxic society. Sun is 
hotter than ever. Now all you want to do is chew your tongue out because you're in so much pain. And you know what? The worst is yet to come. In the sixth and seventh bowl, we see the worst yet. Is it any wonder that Jesus said, today is the day of salvation? There is no tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Well, we'll get to the next two next time. Let's pray. Father, this is amazing stuff for us to even look at. These are incredible truths. We are enriched for knowing them. We are enriched in our heart for knowing who you are and the grace and mercy that you have shown us. This highlights all of that to, to a degree that is really even more unfathomable than it was before. To realize that we will not face these things because of your grace and mercy and to be impelled by your very that same very grace to go and fulfill all that you have commanded us to do while we're here on this earth, regardless of what this earth may do to us. We know they hate you, and so therefore they will too hate us. Lord, help us to be gracious. Help us to be winsome in those things when we share the gospel. Help us to be humble, gracious, kind, Graciously pleading with others like you pleaded with Israel, like a mother hen would desire to gather her chicks under its wings. You pleaded with tears night and day with those of the Jews. Lord, help us to have that demeanor, that attitude, that heart when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. For we know that nothing we say will save anyone but only by your grace and your mercy as you cultivate the heart to receive the word. And so we pray that you would prepare that as we go out and that we would be faithful, honest, delivers of the truth and not be a personal offense to others. Thank you for the gospel and how it is the power unto salvation for all who would believe. Thank you for the riveting view and graphic view of what is to come in the future. Help us know that in Christ there is a refuge. We love you for these things. Because of your son Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.